didn't know she had a pony? How was I to know she had a pony? Who figures an immigrant's gonna have a pony? Do you know what the odds are on that? I mean, in all the pictures I saw of immigrants on boats coming into New York Harbor, I never saw one of them sitting on a pony. Well, why would anyone come here if they had a pony? Who leaves a country packed with ponies to come to a non-pony country? It doesn't make sense. Am I wrong? My guest today is Raihan Salam. He's the executive editor of National Review and a contributing editor at The Atlantic and National Affairs. He's also the author of a new book, Melting Pot or Civil War? A Son of Immigrants Makes the Case Against Open Borders, which he joins the show to talk about today. Raihan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Jim. The title of the book uh, suggests we play, that's kind of a stark choice, the way you've, uh, you've set, it up, set it up. Either we get better at assimilating immigrants or we devolve into some sort of conflict. You use the word civil war. What, what is driving that? What is fundament, Is this fundamentally uh, the manifestation of an economic problem, or is this a political problem that is fundamentally really not about economics, but about politics in some manner? I will cheat and say that it is a problem of political economy, as well as a cultural problem, and the way that these different dimensions of our common life tend to feed into each other. Uh, when I think about this idea of some intensifying conflict, you know, early on, people would think, gosh, Raihan, what are you talking about? And then I've got to say, over the last uh, year or so, people have really come to understand and identify with this idea that we seem to be coming apart uh, in this very pronounced way. And what's more disturbing still is that our divisions are lining up on top of one another. If you have um, different coalitions that still have this overlap in the Venn diagram of cultural relationships and what have you uh, in terms of geographies and much else, then okay, you can deal with those problems because you know I might dislike you as a fan of the Buffalo Bills, but also, hey, you know uh, I'm married to your sister, something along those right. lines. But when you have divisions that map onto other divisions, when you have class divisions that map onto ethnic divisions, geographical divisions, that's when you start seeing more intense conflicts, or at least that's my fear. But why, why is it intensifying? I guess I, I could come up with a scenario where, you know, we're, we're, we are in a deep, long recession. And during, during that period, there's, you know, there's fewer jobs, higher unemployment. People start, you know, wondering, you know, gee, you know, are immigrants taking my jobs? That's, that's not where we're at. We're at, you know, a relatively good economy, very low unemployment. I would think that to the extent that there is any sort of economic motivation uh, for these divisions, that, that, that would be a, a force tending to tampen down. Well, it's also the case that you see moments of rising prosperity that are periods that can be periods of enormous political dissension and fractiousness. Uh, so I don't see it simply as a matter of whether or not you have growth, whether or not you have stagnation. I do believe there's another dimension. One concept that I uh, discuss in the book is that of between-group 
inequality. You can have a very diverse society in which you don't necessarily have patterns of stratification that line up with patterns of, let's say, ethno-linguistic or ethno-cultural difference. If you think about Switzerland, for example, you have German speakers, French speakers, Romanche speakers, Italian speakers, and yet there isn't a sense that, let's say, the Romanche speakers are part of some uh, cosseted elite that is at odds with the rest of society or that has walled itself off from the rest of society. You don't have the feeling among uh, you know, Italian speakers that they are part of some underclass that is persistent over a long period of time. However, when you have societies where those ethnic divisions map on to stratification of an economic variety, as you see in Southeast Asia, for example, Indonesia, uh, Malaysia, these are societies where ethnic pogroms become a periodic threat and that typically elicit some kind of political response. But what it, what is driving the concern? Someone who thinks, you know, who, who's who's concerned about the level? Uh, they think maybe there's too many immigrants. They're worried about low skill taking jobs. Maybe they're worried about illegal immigrants, law and order. What is driving sort of the concern of people sort of on the right? I remember I was recently at this conference, and uh, there was a panel on immigration, and they had someone from Cato who had a you know wonderful PowerPoint presentation looking at all of the uh, doing kind of a literature review on how this is how uh, immigration uh, of all sorts impacts jobs wages making the case that that overall very good for the US economy so he was sort of the pro immigration i guess maybe it's say pro open borders and from Cato probably for open borders and then the other panelist who was very skeptical of immigration he did not have a PowerPoint presentation. He did not slide. He did not refer to the, the, the Giovanni Perry data or anything like that. What he said is, look, there are a lot of people in this world, and there's a lot of poor people, and they would all like to come to the United States. So is that what we want? Do we want 700 million people clamoring into this country, destroying our way of life, destroying our culture as we know it? So that, so that was a different kind of argument uh, he was making. And I, and I certainly sensed, I didn't take a poll of the crowd, that the, that second argument people found much more compelling. Uh, so is, so what, what, what is the concern, what is, at least on the right, and you know, you're the you know, editor of National Review, what is driving the concern of the average person who might find themselves on a National Review cruise? Well, you've asked me a few different questions all at once. Order them, so I'm whatever going to, order or none of them. Uh, got it. So I'm going to try to kind of tackle it piece by piece. You mentioned Giovanni Perry. Giovanni Perry is a very influential immigration researcher, and he recently released a co-authored paper in which he just runs a few simulations. Uh, and one thing he does is says, okay, what if we constrain, what if we say we're going to keep to a given level of lawful permanent admissions. What happens if we move from a primarily family-dominated system to an employment-dominated system? What you find is that the benefits in terms of native wages, the spillover benefits, are substantially higher if you keep inflows the same, but you move from, let's say, more skills-blind selection to skills-sensitive selection. When you make the argument, should we have utterly unconstrained policies or an utterly restricted policy, then, you know, you kind of have one kind of conversation, you have one kind of debate. But you'll find is that immigration researchers who are serious, sober people who say that, okay, within some bounds, right. moving to a more selective system yields very significant benefits. So that's just one small point to make. Now, to your larger question about what is it that is motivating people, um, you know, on both sides of this debate, I'll say that there are a lot of factors at play. One of the factors at play is simply that when you look at earlier periods of American history, you saw a very different pattern um, of immigrant inflows. For example, uh, when you have much larger family sizes, 
In the early 1800s, you know, the typical American family had about seven kids. So natural increase was utterly dominating immigrant inflows. That was also a period when you had the Napoleonic Wars and a variety of other things that were constraining the flow of migration to the United States. When you're looking at the early 1900s, for example, this was a period when still you had quite large native birth rates. That was one factor. Another factor is that you had a huge amount of return migration on the part of migrants coming to the United States. And that return migration had a selective pattern. That is, those who uh, had weaker skills, weaker earnings, were far more likely to return home in that era before you had a very extensive safety net. That was also an era, notably, when you saw a very striking pattern in which those immigrants who had high entry wages, they didn't necessarily see those wages increase dramatically over time, but that tended to persist, and that tended to translate into somewhat higher wages for their second-generation offspring. If you look at those who had weaker skills, who had different outcomes, but you had very slow convergence in that era, the convergence actually picked up after you had some limit. So those immigrants in the early 1900s, uh, they had very positive effects on natives, but they had pretty constrained wages and very intense labor market competition among immigrants. Now, it turns out, Jim, that that was a period when you had a lot of labor militancy. This was the age of Sacco and Vanzetti. This was the age of political anarchism as a real threat. Uh, so when you think about that period, in mid-century America, you had lots of folks who had a political project. How do we reassess that moment in time? How do we look back on it uh, with, you might say, rose-colored glasses? And sort of the, and sort yes. of the open borders people, for them, for them, it's always 1900, right? The, right. So they're not looking at the, the difference in the economy. Well, no, I, wouldn't, I, would go, I would go further than that, Jim. It's actually not always 1900. It's only the most romantic version right. of 1900 that was projected by folks in the 50s. Right. What their vision was at that period of time, what they didn't quite get is that actually the fact that the melting pot was melting and fusing very actively in mid-century America was partly a function of the fact that you did not have quite as much replenishment, uh, you know, kind of after you had the restriction legislation of the 1920s. And we could talk about that legislation more if you'd like, but I do think that that's an important thing to keep in mind. Well, all right. So, I mean, so I understand just sort of, you know, the political landscape. So I understand sort of your, you know, your, your, your libertarians who are for open borders. Are there, are there, so, but on the left, are there groups actively pushing for open borders. And, that, what, and what does that mean? Does that mean they ju there's just turnstiles on the border just so we know how many people come in or maybe someone, you know, click, clicking, you know, one, two. Does that, is that what people, uh, folks on the left, are, is that the counterpart on the left? So thankfully, I'm so grateful to be talking to you, Jim, because you have a pretty subtle understanding of the the diversity within these broad camps and You're there's always a danger. No, no, no. But there's always a danger in making, you know, kind of excessive generalizations. So I'd say first, when you're looking at libertarians, I'd say that there are a few different subtle arguments. There's an argument for a greater openness to migration, but also an argument for what you might call variegated membership. You know, you want guest workers who are temporary. Uh, you want some folks who gain the benefits of citizenship. You build a wall around the welfare state. Maybe you reform or dismantle the safety net in some ways to make this more viable. On the left, you have a few different tendencies. One tendency, I dare say, consists of folks often on the center left, uh, folks who've been involved in democratic administrations and policymaking in the 70s, 80s, 90s, even uh, during the Barack Obama presidency who think, 
well, gosh, we want a more measured, cautious, restrained policy. We certainly do not want open borders. We want resolute enforcement. Those voices are not quite um, as often heard these days as they had been in the past, partly because a lot of the momentum is with folks with a more activist sensibility. And their starting point is not saying, I am for open borders. I will campaign on open borders. It's a little subtler than that. It is a campaign saying that... Immigration enforcement and immigrant removals are presumptively illegitimate and that we ought to focus on it from that vantage point. So Hillary Clinton, David Nakamura of The Washington Post reported on Hillary Clinton saying that, look, she has now said we should have removals for folks who are violent criminal offenders, but not for others. Funnily enough, Hillary Clinton also expressed some skepticism about the wisdom of admitting more high-skilled immigrants, but that's a, that's a separate issue. But she was basically proposing a policy that was a marked departure from what you saw during the Obama administration. She did not say, I'm campaigning for open borders. In fact, she was saying, hey, some of these high-skill immigrants say, gosh, you know, kind of they're offering a lot of competition for folks. But with regard to uh, whether or not we ought to enforce our immigration system in resolute fashion, she was kind of resistant to that. And now you have a wave of some younger democratic socialist activists who say that, well, wait a second, immigration enforcement is part and parcel of imperialism. When you look to Central America, you've got to look to Reagan in the 1980s and the way that the United States interfered in that region of the Cold War. That is why we have to have, we have a presumptive obli- we have bias. An obligation. We have exactly. an obligation. And you even hear people talking about that. I talked to a gentleman some years ago talking about the Philippines. Uh, you know, he was an unauthorized immigrant whose ancestors came from that part of the world and said, hey, American imperialism, the depredations of American empire are why I had to move. So this is an argument that is not the kind of argument you hear on, you know, mainstream television programs or what have you. But this argument from imperialism, um, it's really out there. And it's something that I've encountered and I've tried to engage with in a a thoughtful way. Uh, But I do think that you kind of have this pincer movement in which you have some folks who might otherwise have called for resolute enforcement, but who don't really feel that courage of their convictions in this kind of political climate, and other folks who are saying everything short of open borders in terms of the presumptive illegitimacy of enforcement. All right. I mean, sort of what attracts you to this issue? Is, is Is it sort of, you know, you have this vision of America as a melting pot and you are worried... Uh, that it's going to call. We're going to have a lot of conflict in the vision. Is it primary? Is it primarily that? Uh, to what extent do you think about the economics? You know what? You know what is sort of the the right? I mean, that's. I mean, that's that is more of my of interest. I, I think about what is sort of the right mix of immigrants. You know, to have you know a faster growing economy or more productive economy. That's sort of where more. Uh, my, so, what sort of interests you most about this? Issue? There are lots of different things that have converged for me. Uh, part of it is just biographical. The fact that I come from an immigrant background and I've seen the transformation of some immigrant communities. Um, But I guess um, in this narrow, narrow sense, it starts from here. I am a conservative who believes in the safety net, and I believe in the safety net because I'm pretty concerned about what you might call the legitimacy of a dynamic market economy. You can have a great set of rules on the books. You can have private property rights. You can have, you know, this and that. You can have, you know, a really great tax code. But when you undermine the legitimacy of that dynamic market economy, what you get is what you might call anti-system populism that threatens those things, that threatens the institutions that undergird a dynamic market economy. So that's why I, for example, was a very big believer in the earned income tax credit. But here's the thing. When you also see that the labor market is evolving, it's changing, you see rising challenges. You see, you know, I'm a big believer in automation. I think automation is an absolutely outstanding, positive, productivity-enhancing force. I feel the same way about offshoring. If you get the institutions right, if you get the safety net right, these can be an enormous boon for our country. But the thing is that the labor market evolves 
in response to the labor you have available. And if you have an environment in which, you know, we might evolve in such a way where we don't have self-driving cars. We have so many low-skill immigrants who are kind of really eager, indeed desperate to do certain kinds of work. Hey, let's say we just get rid of the minimum wage. You know, we just won't have to develop self-driving cars. Rather, we will have different technologies that will economize on high-skill labor, let's say. But here's the tricky thing. China, South Korea, Japan, they may well continue developing those technologies that could at the edge be labor displacing or at the very least put some further wage competition on low-skill workers who are already facing pretty intense competition. So my thinking was, well, gosh, as someone who believes that the market wages of folks who have limited skills in the United States right now don't go far enough for them to lead decent and dignified lives, what does that mean for the wisdom of having skills blind immigration policies in the future. That's what really gave me pause. It's the fact that I actually really do believe that you need to help people lead decent and dignified lives if they're going to have a stake in a dynamic market economy. Right. So that's, that sort of drives your interest and your concern. Well, that's one of the drivers. Right. A bit, right. Yeah. I want to oversimplify. What, what confuses me, though, is, is um, our folks on the right who are very heated about this issue I, I don't think they're they're necessarily thinking about the skills composition and how that how that intersects with you know changing automation levels. Uh, they may live in an area where they maybe they don't even run across very many immigrants, but they seem very very worried about this issue. What explains that? Gosh, Jim, there are so you know, many different components to yeah. it, but I'll give you one tiny little interesting little uh, you know piece of uh, research, um, this finding that when you have jurisdictions with very high minimum wages, these are jurisdictions where there's very little competition between native workers and foreign-born workers. When you have jurisdictions with lower minimum wages, it seems that there is somewhat more direct competition. Now, I'm not a big believer in the kind of competition theory that that's kind of the big economic concern, but it's an interesting little factoid. Right. Uh, also, when you look at concerns about migration, you often have them in areas where you've had a big step increase uh, in not, not so much a big population of foreign-born folks, but rather a big increase over some period of time. Um, you know, there are also cultural concerns. And I, I do think going I back mean, to I that question. I guess that's what I'm getting at. Well, Jim. The sort of, you know, someone who's not, maybe, you know, maybe they're retired, so they're not, they're not, they're not in competition oh, sure. uh, with immigrants. And so they're, maybe they're retired, so they're not really active in oh, the yeah. labor force. They're, they're not running, they're not running in t into uh, immigrants. They seem very, very concerned why you have people who uh, are in the labor force, they, you know, they ride the subway, so those sort of thing, different people oh, all the time. Absolutely. They're, they're very accepting. They're not worried at all. Well, gosh, Jim, you know, there are a few different dimensions to this. So one is that when you're talking about that cultural change, recall that I was talking about, uh, I was talking about birth rates before. And one thing, when you think about securing the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity, our posterity, that's a really important idea, the idea that we have a stake in future generations. And when we are obligated to make public investments, in future generations. When you have future generations that are sometimes being raised in chaotic environments, they might need human capital investment that's coming on the public sector side, not just the private sector side. What is it that creates a sense of fellow feeling in which an older generation will feel a sense of identification with a younger generation? When you have far lower birth rates, when you also see a change in the composition of the inflow, this is not the first time in American history where you've seen some kind of break, but here it's all the more pronounced because 
because you also have this larger generational divide overlaid uh, over what you're describing. So I think the story that you're telling is this very classic story. Well, gosh, you know, the people who are in these cosmopolitan enclaves, they don't seem to be all that bothered. Well, one tricky thing, too, is that in those enclaves, okay, about one-fourth of foreign-born folks in the United States are unauthorized. When you look to legally present non-citizens, rates of naturalization are quite low. When you look at those who do naturalize, they tend to vote at pretty darn low rates. So what you see is a funny kind of politics in these places where you have a politics of immigration in which actually a whole slew of those foreign-born folks are not taking part in the politics. We're not really hearing their voices. We're hearing the voices of activists and advocates who are speaking in a way on their behalf. You hear some folks here and there, but in the electorate, they're not really having the same weight they did as American, let's say, the 1920s. So one funny consequence of that is that, you know, I believe that a lot of the younger folks, people who are growing up in second generation working class contexts, these are people who might have pretty darn different beliefs about politics, about income redistribution. You are going to have about $30 trillion in wealth passed on from baby boomers to their offspring over the next couple of decades. Overwhelmingly, that wealth is in the hands of folks in intact families, college-educated parents. They are oftentimes people who own real estate in affluent corners of the country. Now, if you tell young, second-generation, working-class folks their parents had limited skills, limited resources, and what have you, if you tell them, you know, Jim, your wealth that you're passing on to your children is the product of white supremacy and racism, it is the product of a broken capitalist system that has excluded people who look like you. I've got to say, I think that people who uh, are facing a lot of pretty intense competition, a lot of pretty intense challenges, who didn't necessarily get the human capital investment they needed to thrive, uh, I think that that is going to be, in some ways, a, a real grievance. And it's one that I think that we as a democratic society will have to take seriously. But right now, you don't have to worry about that, Jim, because, again, the politics of those places are really excluding a lot of those folks right now who are too young. All right, well, let's get to what you what you want to do. You sort of outlined some of the challenges and problems. What is your plan? Because this book's about a plan. So what, what do you want to do? In a way, what I wanted to do in this book was speak to two different groups of people. I wanted to speak to people like me who grew up in immigrant-rich communities who really believe that immigration can be an enormously positive, um, energizing force, and say to them, you know, I agree with you on that, but we need to take a more humble and restrained approach. I wanted to take to f uh, talk to folks who have a more hardline view in these questions, who are have an instinct towards restriction, and say, you know, look, this is really about knitting a country together from our kind of disparate parts. This is about e pluribus unum. And if you don't get that part right, you're just going to marginalize yourselves, you're going to demonize folks, and you're going to make it that much harder to kind of come to some kind of settlement. So what I tried to do in this book is basically uh, offer a compromise that, you know, kind of a lot of people are not going to love, but I think would be a decent, reasonable, humane compromise uh, that could get us to that hard work of building a nation right. and kind of uh, forwarding that consolidation. So what I basically do is say, you know, you've had these bipartisan immigration deals. You had McCain-Kennedy. You had the Gang of Eight. And the funny and frustrating thing about these deals is that they felt like bargains between folks on the left, let's say organized labor and what have you, who wanted a large-scale amnesty, and folks on the right who wanted a big expansion in temporary guest worker visas. Right. And guess what? That faction of folks on the right is actually not 
all that big. Those folks on the right, they wanted to strip these migrants of access to safety net benefits that their families might need for that human capital investment we've been talking about. And so my thinking is that that latter faction, that's just not real. So if you want a real compromise, you have to talk to folks who are concerned about control, about management. They want to see to it that folks have at least a fighting chance of entering the middle class. They want a system that is a little bit more humble. And that's what I tried to construct here, a kind of compromise between the real divides in our country rather than the ones that exist on op-ed pages. All right. So what do you want to do? Uh, So specifically, I talk about how... um, you know, you're going to need some kind of amnesty. And I use the word amnesty pretty bluntly and straightforwardly because what you've seen in this debate um, is this way of dancing around the amnesty issue by saying, oh, we care about the DACA eligible youth, but then we don't want mandatory E-Verify then because why? Because about two thirds of unauthorized folks in the country have been here for more than 10 years. So so, So unauthorized people, you get to stay. Unauthorized folks who've been in the country for a sufficiently long period of time and where, you know, you want to be sure that it's folks who have been otherwise law-abiding and what have you. So you do want to have some stringent criteria, but you should have some kind of broad so you, amnesty. Do you know roughly how many people that would be? It's hard to say exactly. There's, some new research, uh, there's also some new research saying that there's actually far far greater number. There is dubious research yeah. uh, <laughs> suggesting <laughs> that the number is in the neighborhood of 22 million. Right. That has so you been think, questioned you, so by you folks think like the, the spectrum. Like the 11 or 12 million number is more real. Right. And I do think that when you're looking at folks who have been in the country for, let's say, 10 years or more who entered the country as minors, that seems like a very uh, sound and sensible starting point. And then I believe that when you're looking at uh, legal immigration flows, permanent right. immigration right. flows, what we ought to do is basically take some of the things that have been happening in practice uh, and then actually make them a little more predictable and step-by-step. So, for example, you have a lot of folks who are on non-immigrant visas, let's say H-1B visas, L-1 visas, et cetera, who then try to uh, gain permanent status. Over half of the folks who gain green cards every year are people who are status adjusters um, you know, in this way. And what I'm saying is, look, let's just give people a transparent, clear, step-by-step guide to what's going to better your chances at a green card. Right now, you have 4.1 million people on the wait list who've petitioned for family-sponsored visas. But these family preference visas, you can't even say, well, gosh, I speak fluent English and I have a lucrative job offer. May I move to the front of the line? You can't do that. There's nothing you can actually do. You're just caught in limbo in this crazy Would way. Would there be more legal immigration under your opinion? Under the system that I propose, I say, let's keep the number of green cards the same. Right. We might want to revise that number upward or downward in the future. But right now, as a very simple, straightforward first step, let's see about rebalancing this and giving, gosh, I know a lot of folks who petition for green cards, a lot of folks who've tried to gain status and it's the fact that it's so Byzantine and Kafkaesque and confusing. So giving folks some straightforward guide actually gives potential migrants better data, a better pathway to figuring out how do I navigate the system. But, but you, so you would basically keep those flows steady, but you want to change the, the skill mix. I do think that for right now, that strikes me as the way to make a compromise because when you're looking at folks, particularly on the center left, but some folks on the right too, their feeling is that if you reduce the numbers by one iota, if you reduce it by, you know, the 1.1 million number, if you reduce it by 5,000, they are deeply offended, grievously offended by that idea. So my thinking is that, look, if you want to get some kind of compromise, let's see how far we can get with rebalancing. And my sense is that right now, rebalancing would make an enormous difference in actually resolving some of the political tensions around the issue and also making it more economically beneficial as, you know, kind of folks like Perry and other researchers who've tried to model these different scenarios have found. But do you think, do you, do you think that is sort of a, a pre-Trump 
policy compromise. That 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 that, that I can see, and I can see that that sort of being in the debate uh, before President Trump became president. Now it seems like the debate has shifted toward we just want fewer. Uh, more high-skill immigrants? Well, isn't that just going to be – that going to create more competition for our, mo- our most successful workers? We don't want that either because to me it seems the debate has sort of moved from we're very concerned about the border and und- undocumented. And then it sort of moved to we're really concerned about the impact of low-skill immigration. Now, now I, I certainly hear people saying, well, do we, do we want more competition for high-skill immigration? And gee, maybe – and gee, I'm, I'm also worried about all those foreign students taking slots for my kid. It seems like the debate seems to be metastasizing in I, that direction. I guess I disagree with you, Jim. I've been following this debate for, you know, 20-plus years and in the course of writing, researching on the issue. You know, I kind of – and I've got to say, if you look at the Hesbro Commission, if you look at the Jordan Commission and what have you, you've had uh, serious questions. You have serious questions about how some diploma mills are becoming visa mills. You have a lot of serious questions about the suborning, about the corruption, uh, you know, kind of in our system. And I think that these are pretty legitimate, valid questions. I guess my view is a little different to right. yours. I believe that the Gang of Eight right. and McCain-Kennedy were so far away from actual mainstream opinion. If you look at, for example, the Bipartisan Policy Center and some of their surveys on the issue, some of the work that, you know, uh, our friend Patrick Ruffini has done, it's incredible. I mean, I almost feel like I'm cheating because my views are actually so close to the mainstream of public opinion on these issues. And when you have the Gang of Eight, what you did is you created this opening. When you look at Donald Trump supporters, they did not endorse every jot and tittle of Donald Trump's immigration agenda. Uh, you know, let's say, uh, you know, people were far more favorably disposed to some kinds of limited amnesty and what have you. What they endorsed, I would argue, is his position in directional terms. They were convinced that he favored a national interest policy. And the tricky thing here, Jim, is that there are a lot of good decent folks who actually kind of deploy these economic arguments here and there, they're really masking the fact that it's a moral issue for them. That's what they really care about. I mean, I talk to folks about the fact that, hey, look, you know, actually, we have far more immigrants coming into the United States with permanent green cards uh, who are over the age of 50 now than we did in the early 1980s. So when you make these arguments about immigrants make us young and what have you, well, gosh, you know, what about prioritizing younger folks? But it's not really about that. There's this feeling feeling that the motivations of people uh, are suspect. And for that reason, we can't actually acknowledge them. We can't uh, accommodate them because to do so would be to accommodate bigotry and evil. Now, uh, about the amnesty question, look, I think what we're learning is quite the opposite of what you said. Donald Trump has had a thorough thermostatic reaction on the American public. What you've seen is a galvanizing effect where lots of folks who thought of themselves as moderates and liberals, they are temporarily taking pretty permissive positions. They're saying, well, gosh, you know, I'm really opposed to deportations because Donald Trump's policies have created lots of sympathetic plaintiffs. Now, what happens if you have a Democratic administration that appears to be excessively permissive? Then you'll get another further backlash. And what I want to prevent is that kind of push and pull, that rapid backlash to backlash kind of movement where you're just drastically moving when the executive branch goes in this direction or that direction. I want a sensible, humane, decent compromise that actually speaks to the realities of public opinion right. in the country. So uh, having, having been on a National Review cruise, I'll, I'll, I'll use that sort of, <laughs> I'll use that as my standard. So the, the tip, uh, that, that, that person is like the typical National Review reader. So do you think the, na- the typical National Review reader reading your plan, do you think they would basically say that makes a lot of sense or where would they, where w- would the big problem be the amnesty issue or would they just see, well, directionally, 
Um, it would create an immigration system that would give us more of the kinds of workers who would prosper in our in, in a 21st century economy. What would what would be the reaction? I'm sure you've gotten reactions. Oh, sure. You know? Well, I'd say that on points one and two, on the idea that there is a room for some sort of amnesty, and number two, uh, we ought to move to a more skills-based system. Um, you know, I believe that there's actually very widespread agreement on those two planks. It's my third plank where I say that, you know, gosh, everyone, we've got to think harder about making big, substantial public investments in kids who are raised in low-income households. Ah, so that's the point. That is a group that, well, and you know, and that, uh, you know, not always, you know, kind of, I, there are a lot of folks in the conservative world who are embracing that idea of the safety net, who kind of think that it's important, uh, but do want it to be limited and measured. Um, and I think that, you know, that's a place where you definitely get pushback. Like? What investments are you talking about? Well, there are lots of different ways to think about it. I offer a few thoughts in the book, but I mean, I guess big picture, I really do think you need some kind of program of national national housing expansion. It's become a big uh, pet issue of a lot of us uh, in the center-right world, the idea of reforming zoning regulations and what have you. The fact that it's really, really hard to move from southeastern Michigan uh, to uh, a big sprawling city in California or in the eastern seaboard, you know, that's that's a real problem. Uh, but also the fact that, you know, if you're looking at that second-generation population, it is a disproportionately poor population. So programs like, for example, an expanded child credit, uh, a program like that that could both shore up the legitimacy of a dynamic market market economy and also help some of those families um, get a leg up, you know, I think that that's a very sensible policy. But I've got to say, Jim, when you have Cory Booker saying, I want a $50,000 nest egg for every poor person in the country, a poor kid in the country, excuse me, when Kamala Harris is saying, I have a $2.7 trillion plan uh, to give a very big, generous, refundable tax credit to folks, it's more generous, by the way, if you're a single parent than if you're a married parent, uh, you know, ideas like this, you know, I get where they're coming from, you know, because of these economic changes. But if you say that, hey, we're also going to be wide open for low-skill immigrants, the interaction between right. those two things is pretty problematic. And some of those open borders folks on the right, they say, yeah, you cannot have a far more generous safety net and also have this kind of openness. And that's the thing that folks on the center left, they're not really thinking hard enough about, in my opinion. Right. If, I mean, if you had your druthers and you, you thought you could make a persuasive case, what would your plan look like? Would it have actually have a lot more immigration, and maybe you know, you know, it would be uh, you know, the mix would be uh, different today. But I mean, can can we take more uh, more immigrants in this country? Maybe a lot more immigrants if they're of a different sort of skill set, educational level. Here's what I try to always drive home. If one billion people came to the United States, uh, could we put them to work? Absolutely. But we would put them to work by radically revising our social contract, by really markedly changing our institutions in all sorts of ways. And there could be all kinds of funny, complicated, knock-on consequences to doing that. The model of variegated membership in a society you see in Qatar, you see in Singapore, you know, that's a real thing. When you're willing to deport folks for becoming pregnant, when you're willing to strip them of access to the safety net, when you're willing to render them stateless persons... Uh, the tricky thing is that we as a country are very resistant to some of those modes of enforcement right. that would make a system like but, that. But, work. but could we, I mean, are there, I mean, could we incorporate a lot more high skill immigrants? Are they are there are they out there? Could we incorporate them in a way that would that, that they would you know be you know functioning, prosperous members of our society? Uh, their children would you know move up. Do we do can we could we incorporate those kinds of people? Well, so as a conservative, as a small C conservative and a large C conservative, yeah. I guess, um, I, I just am very wary of thinking in terms of abstractions. Um, so do I believe that we could have a you know of course I do because I actually advocate an increased in skills uh, skilled immigration right. in the book. But within I, the context I, right, of the exactly. 
exactly. those levels. Exactly, right. of kind of 1.1 million. Right. That's certainly right. true. Uh, you know, could it be slightly higher than that? Maybe. But what I see happen, what I certainly saw happen in the Gang of Eight debate, is that you really then water down what it means to be a skilled immigrant. If you look at the H-1B visa program, it is this really bizarre lottery rather than having, you know, just simple wage ranking. You know, there are all kinds of very simple, straightforward things you do, you can do. But the thing is, when it interacts with the interests of this or that lobby, what you get are policies in which the folks you're referring to as skilled immigrants. Right. This is another thing you saw in the Gang of Eight bill. You had this whole separate track for low-skilled folks for uh, turning uh, temporary W visas into permanent visas. So I, I just think that a very simple idea is using a market test. Uh, in the proposal that I lay out here, I say that, look, you give points based on job offers. If you are someone, if Jim Pethokoukas's third cousin is a brilliant trapeze artist who has no more than an eighth grade education but commands a very high income by right. dint of her skills as a trapeze artist, I'm okay with that. Have some kind of market test uh, rather than have something that is far more arbitrary than that. So when it comes to that you know, kind of skills question, do I believe we could sustain somewhat more? Maybe, but I'd love to see what happens if we simply rebalance first. And folks who immediately go to drastic expansion, that doesn't strike me as a very measured and humble thing to do. My guest today has been Raihan Slam. Raihan, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. City.